and welcome to another episode of Brides of Frankenstein. I am Alyssa Oriema. I am Lindsay Sletzik. For this episode, we should be in a good mood and we should not have any tears because it is a waste of good suffering. It's very true. Last week, we had a really lovely episode, a really lovely movie. I mean, it was still really scary, but a lovely movie about marriage and love and, and Patrick an example Wilson. of and, and Patrick Wilson, and, a, and an example of healthy relationships. And this week, we are not doing any of that. What's the opposite of that? Because that's what this is. We are going into full tilt horn dog land, I think. I uh, this is one of the horniest movies I've ever seen. In a way, it is, definitely. And, and it, but it's not horny in like a, ooh, like I'm titillated way. It's horny in like a, I need to go take a shower kind of. It's, yeah, it, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable kind of horny. It's like watching homemade unless, porn. Unless you're a specific type of person, in, in which case, hey, it's a very good kind of horny. It, we, we here at Brides of Frankenstein are very inclusive, very non-judgmental. This is a safe space. This is a safe space. Just saying, for me, I felt a little dirty after watching this. A little greasy, maybe. A little greasy. I was actually going to say greasy, but then I wasn't yeah. sure. But there's grease and viscera and glue there's all over this movie. A lot of fluids. There's a lot of fluids. We are going to be talking about Clive Barker's 1987 movie, Hellraiser. Clive Barker's first film as a director. It is not his first film as a writer, um, but it is right. it's his first film as a director. Lots of people in this movie, it was their first, one of their first major films, but a lot of them had had experience in theater, kind right. of tell, because right. this, this movie is very operatic in the way. You know, it, it is uh, in a way. It's, it's very Shakespearean in a way, particularly the last like third. It really is. So mm -hmm. what is your experience? What is your background with this movie? I actually don't think I saw it until last year. Oh, wow. I think it was one that I was aware of, like from a cultural standpoint, like obviously I know Pinhead is, I know about the Cenobites, but yeah, I don't think, oh no, you know what? It was this year. I don't think I actually sat down and watched it until I got a Shutter account. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, so this is like really new for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, okay, cool. Okay, I'm excited to like talk about this with you then because this was maybe like my seventh time seeing this movie. I, I, <laughs> really? Yeah, the last time, the first time I watched it was about seven years ago mm -hmm. and I've watched it several times since. But you, I mean, you have to be in the right mood to watch this movie. In uh, so much as you can be in the right mood for this movie. <laughs> Yeah, you have to be kind of in that gothic horror Clive Barker mood. Like, like, like gothic, gothic horror on amphetamines. Yeah, and I remember I, I knew about Pinhead. I knew about the Cenobites. I'd seen some information about this movie. See, I'd never seen it. And the, the only thing that I really had that was really familiar to me was when it was on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments, and it was sure. very, very high on the list. Like, mm -hmm. And they were talking about how the thing that makes Hellraiser different than other horror movies is the inclusion of BDSM into the right. concept. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, that's what that movie is about? I thought it was just about this weird puzzle and you solve it and then this- And then it brings but you actually, to But actually- Mm -hmm. This the first movie is not my first experience with the Hellraiser series. My first oh, really? experience 
Yeah. My first experience, and this is just, this is, it's so embarrassing. So the actor Henry Cavill was in one of the sequels to Hellraiser. I'm sure it was good ones. Oh, it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. It's called (laughs) Hellworld, I believe. So the thing that's interesting about this franchise is that it is one of those franchises where they take pre-existing scripts and they just wiggle Pinhead and the Cenobites into it. Mm-hmm. and make it part of the Hellraiser series. So like, they're not so they're not writing the subsequent movies specifically for the franchise. After I think 2 and 3. I think 2 and 3 were written specifically in response to the original, right? Yes. And yeah. because because Hellraiser because Hellbound it has a lot of the same characters from the first Hellraiser. So it, yes. it you could you could see first Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 as like a duology. Yeah. I mean, um, in fact, Hellraiser 2 even takes place like literally the day after the events of the the first movie. Right. And then once Hellraiser 3 comes out, when mm-hmm. you have that guy who shoots CDs out of his face, uh, it, it just kind of turns into a series where it's like, we like Pinhead and the movies become about Pinhead. And if I remember correctly, yeah. Hellworld is about, it's, it, it's like a CD-ROM like game or something. Mm-hmm. And it's very bad. It was made in like <laughs> 2004. So it's right around when Saw and all these movies were coming out. Okay, and yeah. It's so clearly not a Hellraiser movie. It's just mm-hmm. a movie that they decided to capitalize on Hellraiser by like shoving Pinhead. By shoehorning these iconic characters into, yeah. You know what's funny? Yeah. That to me is, I think part of the reason why Pinhead and the Cenobites were so effective in the first movie is because you really don't see them. No. Touted as the face of the franchise, and he is to a certain extent, but he's not a huge presence in the film itself. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the show, but he's not, he's not even like the main villain or the main monster in the movie. No. Kind of, in, I don't want to say an incidental character because that implies he's not, that implies he's not integral to the plot, which right. is the case, obviously. But he's not the driving force. And especially in the first movie, he and the Cenobites are not quote-unquote, evil characters. And they're very much, they don't, they're in the movie for maybe, like, 10 minutes. 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. And that's, and that's the point I was coming around to in my sort of roundabout way, is that I think they lose that effectiveness when the franchise becomes specifically about that aspect. I think they work better as, again, not, not, like, secondary characters necessarily but i think they work better as a support to the greater plot they work better as the as a mystery like the first time you see them you're like what the hell is happening it's it's interesting because if you listen to the commentary clive barker talks about how he wanted the first like 10 15 minutes of the movie to be this sort of moment where you're throwing the audience like on it on its heels a little bit and then mm-hmm. you can buy and then you buy the next like 25 30 minutes of exposition where not a lot happens yeah um, yeah exactly and you definitely see that with this movie like that opening scene is very shocking in in the, the violence and the suddenness of it and yeah it does kind of like prime the audience so now you've kind of given yourself permission to go in and do a little bit of the backstory and the exposition to set up everything that comes after that. Um, uh, very similar to Wes Craven and Scream. I was very just going to say that, actually. I was gonna, that was going to yep. be the example. Yeah, it's very, you, you start off with a bang. Now you've, you've wet the audience's appetite. So now you can kind of put the brakes on a little bit 
and take your time to develop it so that everything that comes after can just kind of like hit you in the face. Yeah. Hit you with a face. Ugh. <laughs> and, it's, and it's so funny because it's just, this movie is, like we've done gross movies on the podcast mm -hmm. so far, but this is one of those movies where it's just nasty. It's the opposite of Texas Chainsaw in that they show. They show. <laughs> everything. There is no off-screen violence. It is all on-screen, in your face, and they're, they're basically demanding that you look at it. Yeah, and it's close like, look what, we, look what we have done for you. Look what we have brought for you. We have such sights we to have, show you. We have such sights to show you. But I remember watching it and, like, loving it. I was like, damn, this movie is so good. Like, it's, it's great. It's, it's really, really good, and it's so... Ugh, it's so unsettling and dis it's, it's yeah. really disturbing. In well, and you know what's ways. interesting about this movie too is that the violence is the point, but it's not, like, like it is there to shock you, mm -hmm. but there's also a deeper meaning beyond that. It's almost like it's there to shock you to make sure you're paying attention. It's not just violence for the sake of it, which is something that we've talked about before as being particularly annoying in this genre where it just exists to gross you out. And it does gross you out, but I think there are deeper, well, I know there are deeper themes to explore within this world because we're gonna talk about that. Yeah. It's, uh, the violence is there, the violence is not, the violence is not there to shock you. There's a, there's a, there's a point to the violence mm -hmm. because the, it's really, the, it's honestly not about violence. It's about sensory experience. And extremity. And, and extremity and honestly about how apparently this guy is so hot that this woman will do anything to 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 hop on it one more time apparently like we were joking around about what to call this episode and some yeah. of the things that we were thinking about were um is he worth it <laughs> and uh what was the other one uh no dick is that good linda and honestly i was i was listening to um an episode of another podcast where they were talking about this movie um, Hello Mary Lou Prom Night 2 and one of the guests on it was like I have seen hardcore porn that is less horny than this movie and yeah. like once you get to actually not even once you get to first thing the first moments of this movie it's just a horny movie right from the get-go and even when we talk about you know the, the 20 minutes of exposition or so after the opening scene even that the exposition is horny. Yeah, yeah, it, it is explicitly horny. It's not, and, and, and I think that it's very important that we use the word horny because it's not arousing. It's not, it's not like- It's not erotic. It's not sensual. It's, it's, it's not sexy. It's not, well, <laughs> I mean, I would even, I would maybe call it erotic because of the idea of the erotics of like pleasure okay. and, and yeah. stuff. But I think horny is the, is the yeah. primary mood. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the primary drive behind this plot is the pursuit of pleasure. Yes. And the extremes that we sometimes go to in order to experience it. It reminded me a lot of, um, oh God, in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, it's right. It's a, the don't dream it, be it thing where, yeah. Fra where yeah. Frank says, give yourself over to absolute pleasure. I mean, like, that's it, this it, movie. That's this movie in a nutshell. It really, really is. So, I mean, let's get into the, let's just get into this, this horny, let's get right horny the fuck movie. into it. Let's get into it waist deep. 
The film opens on our resident asshole, Frank, who is haggling over a puzzle box in Morocco. Uh, we jump cut to a bare attic where Frank manages to decode the box only to end up getting ripped apart by hooks attached to chains that kind of come out out of the box. And we see, we see the attic kind of transformed into this weird like pseudo torture chamber. But Frank is the worst, so this is fine. The, the very first thing that this movie really should set up for you is that Frank is gross. That's probably the best way I could describe him. He's yes. a disgusting human being. Yes. And I think the one thing that, that really sets in your brain how disgusting Frank is as a human is there's a close-up shot of him like curling his hand around the, the box, the puzzle box, and you can just see dirt all he's, up in his nails. He's got, he's got like the gnarliest fingernails. Yeah, it's, it's such a simple but super effective trick in terms of establishing, you know, like, oh, this person is disgusting. It is. It happens like three seconds in. Like it's this puzzle box and you see his hands close around it and you're just like, oh, that tells Ugh. me so much about the character. And, that, and then the next scene when he's opening the puzzle box, he's just covered in sweat. And it's just, we haven't seen this much sweaty man action since The Covenant, really. <laughs> We're treated to a shot of the room later, even, which has become even more of this, uh, it has taken on even more of this torture chamber aesthetic, this kind of otherworldly room full of, you know, hooks and chains and pillars covered in viscera. And uh, we see a figure in a black robe who closes the box and returns the room to its original state. Yeah, it's almost like the, um, when you close the box, it like sucks everything up in it. And I, I kind of interpret it almost as like it's projecting this alternate dimension or alternate reality on top of ours so like in a way like rather than opening a door to another dimension it's sort of overlapping the two and you know what that is you do get that sense in the in the short story too and also something else too is that there's um yeah all this viscera and weird nasty stuff like all over the place and one of the things that we see is um something that looks like pieces of frank's face that he Um, yeah that they put back together like almost like a puzzle and you can see like the edges of some of the pieces still have like hooks embedded in the skin it looks like if leatherface's mask was still wet yeah actually it's very it's, it's it's a very similar aesthetic one thing that's really interesting about this scene though is in contrast to all this this gore and this viscera and you can see like a layer of blood and gore on the floor and the way that pinhead moves is weirdly graceful mm-hmm. almost there's almost a serene aspect to him the first time we see him which is in direct contrast to everything around him and i think that's a really interesting first glimpse at what will become an iconic character in horror and someone that we associate with monsters like i think we put him in the same category now as like Dracula or Frankenstein mm-hmm. or the Wolfman, like these classic horror movie monsters. He's sort mm-hmm. of a new generation of that. So to see this almost like balletic kind yeah. of to him, like the way he glides through the room is very, I, it's, it's unexpected, I think. Um, but I, I think so too. I watch that scene, I'm struck by that all over again, like how, how his movement draws your eye in direct mm-hmm. contrast to like all the horror around him. And there's something weirdly beautiful 
about the way he moves. And I, I think that's really fascinating. No, I completely, I completely agree. There's a reason why in some versions of this, he's called like the priest. And it's almost like they're very clean, even though they're filthy. They're almost like above, above everything. And when, like, because yeah. you look at the floor and it's covered in like pieces of literal pieces of human or uh, pieces of people, yeah, and pieces of Frank. And there's like these whips and chains and every and things spinning and things mm-hmm. nailed to. There's to yeah. There's there's a there's a sort of frenetic movement to the room around him and it's like a wind chime. Like, yeah, like a, like a really weird, disgusting wind chime. But he's this spot of, he's a spot of stillness in the middle of that. And then it, everything disappears. And then you kind of buy the next, like I said, 20 minutes or so of, of not a lot happening. Exactly, exactly. You're and like, you're kind of still processing what the hell did I just look at? Totally. And it is interesting that the next 20 minutes is basically all exposition because we get nothing in the opening scene in terms of exposition. You are just thrown into this like weird BDSM religio universe. My favorite is the makeup guy on the commentary with Clyde Barker. Well, he ends up joining uh, the makeup and prosthetic and costume people Mm -hmm. for Hellraiser, the Hellraiser series, but he helped out on the first Right. And he says to Clive, he was like, I came and visited the set a few times, but when I first saw the movie in its entirety, when I, when that first couple scenes ended, I was like, oh my God, is this how the whole thing is going to go? And Clive Barker just kind of giggles. He's like, oh, you know, well, I was very excited and I wanted it to look like scanners. And that's really in, 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 yeah, it it does kind of relate to that body horror. Definitely. And to that point too, it's not how the rest of the movie looks. Like not even a little bit. Are extreme, but I think there's a good ratio between like violent and nonviolent scenes. Yes. In this movie, they strike a good balance, especially because those violent scenes are so extreme compared to a lot of what we're used to seeing. Yes. In horror, I think as an audience member, you need your brain needs a break in between. Yeah, it gives you a second to just be like, you just okay. need a second. You just need a second to catch your breath and kind of process what you just saw. Yeah, and he gives us a good amount of time for that. And um, the perfect, the perfect way to process what we just saw is to introduce introduce one of the most milk toast husband characters in all of horror. Our good friend Larry tends to be Frank's brother. Once the attic goes back to its original state, we jump to at like kind of an indeterminate point in the future. Where sometime sometime later, yeah. Sometime later, yeah. They don't really specify how much time has taken place. I yeah. get the impression it's been at least a few months, but not but not because but, of how nasty the house looks. Yeah, exactly. So Frank's brother Larry moves into the house with his wife Julia. Their marriage is in bad shape, much like the house itself. Uh-huh. And Larry's hope is that the move will help patch up the strained relationship. And this is one of those things where it's like, definitely, it's such an exposition scene. I feel like he even says like, we've got a new start. I've got my job and you're back home and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, it's like yeah. exposition, exposition, exposition. And this guy is the, is like the equivalent of a couch with, with the plastic wrap on it. He yeah. is just, he oh, is this poor man. well-meaning, but doesn't seem to have a clue especially because we see right from the beginning julia seems to look at him with like thinly veiled contempt oh she oh he's over here like well what do you think honey isn't this house gonna be great i can't wait to move in and we can have our lives together it's like dude you don't seem to know what's going on 
And she is, I don't know if it's the makeup or the hair or what it is, but she just has the best, I hate this energy, that whole first scene. She really does. She's got this like ice queen kind of quality, but like in a way where she's trying to act like she's not. Every time Larry turns away from her, her face just kind of turns into into stone. Yeah, there. Yeah, it drops into this like sneer. Oh, it's you know so good. She, She's fantastic. You know who she reminds me of? If you put Stockard Channing and Kate Blanchett into a blender, that's you would get this. You would get this actress. Like Claire Higgins. Yeah. Um, in terms in terms of her her looks and the way she carries herself. I would even also say that um, the, on the commentary, they talk about it at a certain point at the end, near the end of the movie that she looks like Elsa, Lan- Elsa Lan- Lancaster, Bride mm-hmm. of Frankenstein. Yeah. And she looks a lot like that, especially when yeah. she starts getting real weird looking. So it's this old house. There's like nasty crap everywhere. But then they're like, we'll move in on Sunday. I'm like, dude, there are maggots in the kitchen. Like, what are you Yeah, you are insane. So Larry's daughter, Kirsty, has moved with them as well, but she wisely opts to find a place of her own rather than moving into the house with Larry and Julia. And it's kind of implied, and we get a little bit more information later, that part of the reason is that she and Julia don't get along. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's kind of that evil stepmother trope. Yeah. And you get a sense that Kirsty's trying, but... Not I, I'm gonna really. I'm gonna say I get the sense that she has tried in the past and she's at a point where like the best they can kind of muster is polite indifference. Yeah. Like, she seems to kind of have resigned herself to the fact that like they're never going to get along, they're never going to have what we would consider a good relationship. So the best we can do is just try to keep the peace. Yeah, and Julia kind of looks at her with this sort of I mean the whole time, up until the the moment that it kind of turns, Julia mm. sort of is not really the warmest of people. No, um, no. It kind of makes you wonder why she married him in the first place? I have absolutely no <laughs> idea. But in the short story, it gives more of a sense that, like, she was a little bit less like this before she met Frank. I think you get a little bit of that in the flashback as well, like, She's she definitely doesn't have the same like chilly demeanor that we see in the opening of the movie when she first yeah flashback like there's definitely a little bit she seems a little bit more human yeah I I don't know if that's very in the very beginning let me be very clear like when um when Frank first comes to the door right I don't know if that's because she is warmer or it's because. Frank has now, Frank, like, triggers the never-ending horniness. Like, I don't know. I mean, know. I think that's that's part of it, but there's definitely a difference in her demeanor when she first opens the door versus, like, after he comes inside. Like, you can see yes. the shift in her personality. And that's kind of where, that's what I'm extrapolating that from. And it is really just extrapolation, honestly. No, I can see that. I can definitely see that. Yeah, I think that there's a, there's a, Thing in her that Frank kind of brings out. There's there's a there's a darkness in her that I think yeah, like you said, Frank brings that to the surface, and then it becomes a matter of like you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You know what I mean? Like once he brings that out, I think it becomes impossible for her to go back to the way she was before. Which is also why her marriage to Larry seems to be in such uh, dire straits at the beginning of the movie. 
So then we have just some like domestic scenes. Oh, yeah, I mean, going back, going back to the day they first like get to the house, we kind of mentioned this briefly, but like there are signs that somebody has been living there fairly recently. Squatting like, there, basically. Yeah, yeah, basically squatting, which is weird because one, it's clearly Frank who's been living there and two, it's his fucking house. <laughs> yeah, and there's like a mattress on the floor of in, like in one the, of the In rooms. the attic, he's not even in one of the beds. And I mean, the attic could partially be because that's where he wanted to open the puzzle box. Right. But it also doesn't yeah. explain why he was sleeping there before. It makes no it's sense. It's very strange. Especially oh. because there are signs of living, like on the first floor of the house. You know, there's that weird sort of religious shrine. Oh my God, there's so much there. random crap. So much random crap. And then like the kitchen is full of like rotting food and maggots and everything. And obviously it's a sign that nobody's been in there in a very long time. But somebody would have had to be using it in the first place for it to get in that state. You know what I mean? So there's yeah in the house, but for some reason he is living on a skanky mattress in the attic surrounded by pictures of nude or mostly nude women. Yeah, so he, uh, Julia finds this, like, cache of photographs. Mm-hmm. And some of these photos, if you, like, freeze the, if you freeze frame it and you look they're, at them, like, more specifically. They're pretty They're explicit. so, they're explicit, but also some of them are really stupid. Like, there's one <laughs> yeah. of Frank in back of a woman who's, like, on her hands and knees, like, doggy mm-hmm. style, but they're both fully clothed. And I paused the, the screen because yeah. I was like, why? Huh? And it's like, and he's looking at the camera like, yeah. And I'm like, it, it was so weird. And I was just I mean, like, fraudage, is, fraudage is a kink for some people. It was, it, yeah, but it, it almost didn't even feel like fraudage. It was more like, here, let me put you in front. So, and then let me look at the camera. It was, it reminded me, it was very Patrick Bateman, American Psycho, when he's flexing mm. his muscles in the mirror. Like it, it, it kind of looked like that. It's very, but it's yeah, very no, like frat boys playing a prank almost like, oh. It, oh yeah, it so is. Yeah. And uh, uh, Clive Barker said that on this, on the day that they filmed that, um, like a ton of the crew tried to get into the room to see the stuff get, that was getting shot. And he said on the commentary, yeah. when they were filming were, and they were taking those pictures, he was like, this woman that we, um, that we got for these shots, um, I think she was a, uh, <clears throat> a, prof- a professional. And so it's still leaving you with all these questions about like, who yes. is this guy? I mean, we know that it's Larry's brother, but also like, what is he even But we don't know anything about him other than the brief glimpse we got in the beginning. And honestly, from what we've seen so far, doesn't seem like the kind of guy we need to get to know any further, honestly. No, he just seems gross. Yeah, he, like, well, yeah exactly. He's like he's gross, gross human being. We learned through a series of flashbacks that Julia and Frank had had an affair in the past fairly shortly after she was married to Larry. And Julia is still unspeakably horny for him. And this will be later. I, it's, it's, she is so inconsolably horny for him. There's this scene where- Literally, it literally changed her personality. She is so horny for him. He, he boned her into a new way of being. That's yeah. how, like, apparently good this, yeah. this sex was. But no, oh, um, speaking of, though, the, the sex scene, they had to reshoot it because apparently the first version was too hot. And Clive Berger- Yeah, yeah the- two, two thrusts apparently is the minimum. I mean, is the, the, the maximum. The, and, and, yeah, yeah. 
and and Clive Barker said we had our first our first take of that scene had some spanking in it, and he sounds so like delighted. And yeah. He's like, there's a, a version of the scene that we shot with the spanking in it, and I don't know where it, where where it ended up. But this scene is still like he uses a knife to like cut her shirt off. But the thing is, though, is he comes in and he's like, again, he's wet. He goes, yeah, like like literally net wet, not sexy wet. No, like just soaked. And he comes in and he goes, "Don't I get to kiss the bride?" Also, <laughs> the other thing that we need to mention is that. The guy that plays Frank, his voice got dubbed over by an American actor. Because, because the studios thought a British film would be too niche. But on. it's so clearly set in Britain. That's the funniest but, part. And, and it's weird because, like, because they dubbed over a lot of the voices. And they did it for uh, some of the friends in the dinner scene. Yep. Too. I think it kind of muddies the film a little bit because it makes it very unclear like where it's supposed to take place. Because Larry says yeah. when they first move in that they're back on, uh, I mean, it's not the exact words, but he says they're back on Julia's turf, essentially. Yes, which makes you think that they're in England. In and England, then, but then lit- almost, literally almost every other character speaks with an American accent. It, it, I think it just kind of confuses the locale. And yeah. It looks very English, too. Yes, so, so like, many different, like, on the commentary, they laugh because they're like, you know, this very American film and there's the British subway station. Because yeah. the studio, it was after they shot it that they were like, we need to make this more American. It, it makes me feel sad for Clive Barker because I do look at this movie as a very specifically British horror film because it's got a lot of that gothic European mm-hmm. hammer horror yeah. kind of aesthetic to it. And, and I don't not, think you get that only, in America. Not only that, but it it seems like a direct response to the decency laws in Britain at that time and the concept of like the video nasty. Yep, Um, which we talked about in our Evil Dead episode. Go back and listen to that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, yeah, it is kind of a shame that the studio, once they gained interest in in the film and in distributing it over in America, they're like, you have to quote unquote Americanize it or the audiences won't respond. So funny. Because that's garbage. Like, it's been in the 80s. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't feel like that would have been the make or break for a movie like this. No, there's so many British yeah. horror movies. Um, I yeah, and, and then like uh, so many like Italian horror movies that are dubbed terribly, like we talked about in our <laughs> Suspiria episode, right. do really well. And, and one of Clive Barker's inspirations for some of the imagery in this film was of Argento movies. Yeah, yeah, Suspiria specifically. Yep. yep. Yeah. Um, and also the blood is super bright in this movie too, which I think also does that I, Yeah, too. I feel like that's a nod to Argento as well. Oh, so the one other thing I wanted to mention about this scene where Frank seduces Julia is that, I don't know if you, if you, if you caught this, but, you know, he like takes a knife and he like slits open her dress and then he goes to kiss her, but he like kisses her chin open mouth like grab like it's on her chin and I was just like ugh and it, that's the thing this movie is horny but it's also gross like it's just it's 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 horny turn you on again no. unless, unless you are a certain kind of person and, and if you're into that bless you we, we support we, you endorse you we support you we see you I, I I think it's just the level of overt like a little too up close and personal a little bit me. yeah but I think the other thing that's really interesting about this um, moment is the intercut of Julia and Frank doing it on top of her wedding dress. On top of her wedding dress, which is a nice touch. 
in case we wanted it to be really, really explicit that this is symbolic in some way. Mm. So there's, it, it goes back and forth between Julia's fantasy flashback and um, Julia kind of like standing in the, in the attic, like having this like flashback moment. Almost having this like sense memory. Yeah. And she's really emotional about it. And mm. it cuts back and forth between like Frank's thrusting and Larry trying to move uh, a mattress. The mattress the that mirrors, they fucked on. The mattress that the they stairs. fucked on up the stairs. Yeah. And, and there's these, all this like, this like thrusting movement that mm-hmm. Larry's doing, trying to get the mattress through it's, the yeah, it's, passage. It's a, dire- it's a direct contrast to. Because the passage is really tight. So they keep trying to shove the mattress through. Mm-hmm. And Larry slices his hand open on a nail that's in the wall. And that's yeah. how the, that ends. They all have this moment of ecstasy or pain. It's like the mixture of pleasure. And yeah, pain. yeah. So Larry kind of staggers up to the attic to look for Julia. And he drips blood onto the floor, which resurrects Frank as a skinless animated corpse. Uh, it's, it's, and this is where I, the, the, the point of this movie being gloopy is really just, It's very, yeah, yeah, it's very much, it's very much present in this. Um, also, something that I found interesting is that this was not something in the original script. This is something that... No, they weren't planning on actually showing Frank's resurrection because at the time they didn't have the budget for that. Nah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, when American budget. Studios got involved, they got more money. So they were able to go back and film that particular sequence. And I think there's another shot too, where it's like a shot of the attic and then the camera pans down and directly underneath the attic is the Cenobite. Yeah. And it's just one smooth transition shot down from one floor to the next. And I think that's, that was another like pickup shot because they had to, they had to reconstruct the attic because that's the other thing with the house in the film is that they used an actual house that was for sale in, I think the area. Can we shoot our gross horror porn in your house? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> well, I mean, and a, lot of, a lot of the gross, a lot of the gross scenes did take place in a studio. On, on like, a set. Yeah, 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 they did have like an attic set built specifically so they weren't covering this poor house in gore and, and mechanical rats. That was a cute moment too on the commentary where um, Clive kept having to have Ashley Lawrence, who plays Kirsty, remind him of what, what parts of the attic were a set and which parts right. were in the actual house. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, so not long after he's resurrected, Frank is discovered by Julia, who agrees just a little too quickly to start bringing people back to the house for Frank to murder so that he can drain, your, drain their life and return to his former self, and then they can run away together or something. And she, like runs out of the room because she's freaked out and then she has like a horny fantasy again about what her about i don't know how good the dick is and then comes back in and is like oh you know what it is it's that she says i'll do anything and frank's like oh yeah yeah, yeah. um because when there's a there's a moment right after they boned for the first time where they're laying on the bed where where frank goes to leave and she and frank says and frank says it's it's never enough so you get the sense that Frank, I'm going to say, is the original edgelord because, because then you start to get the impression, oh, this is a guy that just is like after the ultimate high or the ultimate orgasm or whatever it is. And nothing's yeah. ever enough. And he says that to her. He says mm-hmm. it's never enough. Yeah. And he's going to leave. And Julia's like, no, I'll do anything. Ah. Now she revisits that memory 
And yeah. Frank's like, you'll do anything. And Julia's like, I'll do anything. And then they do it again, apparently. And okay. Julia comes back into the attic and she's like, yes, I'll do it. And yeah. Frank looks like every kid's show. Here's what a human body looks like. He's very like anatomical model. Vitruvian man, but, but like and wet. Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Everything I'm saying in this episode is this, but wet. So yeah. So now so, they've come to this agreement or whatever. Right. So she lures a series of unsuspecting men back to the house where she wounds them enough to incapacitate them so Frank can finish them off. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting little like wrinkle in the story that she only ever brings back men for him to drain. And part of it, like part of it is because she does use this seduction aspect to lure them back. Like they think they're coming back to have sex with her, but no, she hits them with a hammer. She also picks doofy guys. The the men that she takes back to the house are simps is what they are. Hmm. They're like, oh, I've never done this before. Like, like she goes for the low hanging fruit. These men are the lowest of yes. hanging fruits. And yeah. we're gonna we're gonna talk in a little while about some of the queer themes within the movie. But one of the ones that does jump out to me is the fact that it's always men that Frank is draining. Because you could, yeah. she could very she could very easily find a reason to lure women in as well. Like you know, you would have to employ perhaps a different tactic or seduce women too who cares i mean if the if, always, if she wants it that much but she specifically brings back men for frank and i think there's something interesting kind of worth exploring in in that aspect as well i i do too and it's not really specific it's not specified like i need men it, like no, I need like no, masculine never, energy or whatever it's just i right. need blood I would say that this movie is like if Little Shop of Horrors was shot by a leather daddy. Like it's just, <laughs> yeah. It's it's very much like I need to feed you and make you grow, and now there's just a layer of boinking on top of it. Sure. All right. So in the midst of all of this, Kirsty goes by the house one day and sees Julia luring one of her victims inside. Uh, she follows them up to the attic and actually interrupts them mid-attack. Frank turns on her. But she manages to fend him off, grabbing the puzzle box and hurling it out the window before making an escape herself. Frank says, it's me. It's, it's Uncle Frank. And then he says, come to daddy. But it does come back. It does come back later on. But I just, I didn't even want to mention it, but I would only mention it because it comes back later. But yeah, it becomes important later. It's nasty. Pausing just long enough to grab the puzzle box, she takes off down the street, but collapses as she tries to flee. Probably from like like shock or something yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of unclear because she doesn't even run that far so it's not even like she's no she like she like dead sprints for like a block and then she kind of like collapses and then then basically faints cold yeah it's gotta be an adrenaline crash or something like that uh, yeah you know i'm gonna call this a little bit of plot armor just to keep the story oh yeah this Um, it was just a matter of getting her from point a to point b exactly She wakes up in the hospital where she actually manages to open the puzzle box, which opens up a door to hell. Uh, She goes through the door where she's immediately attacked by a monster known as the Conductor. She escapes, but it doesn't matter because the Cenobites follow her through, led by Pinhead. He tells her that by unlocking the box, she has summoned them to her, and now they're going to drag her back to their realm with them. But she stalls them by telling them Frank has escaped, and she says that if she can lead them to him, they can take him back instead. Uh, Pinhead agrees, but on the condition that Frank 
actually confesses his escape out loud. And Pinhead also tells her that if she's lying, they will tear her soul apart. So this is the first time we get a sense of like, what the hell is going on? Like we knew, we, we have this sense that Frank was like pursuing this ultimate sensory mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. and the puzzle box was part of it. And he escaped this realm and doesn't want to go back because it, it was too much for him, which um, maybe you should have thought of that before you open the damn box, Frank. So that we then get a sense of who these people are or who these beings are. And Christie does say like, who are you? And, and they say, we are explorers in the further realms of experience. And I also love the part where um, uh, the other one speaks a little bit, but uh, Pinhead's the really the, the, the lead. There's one called Chatterer. There's one called um, Butterball, uh, the, which right. is the big one. And then mm -hmm. there's this other one, and I always call her just vagina neck because she's got this weird like opening in her neck and it looks like a vagina. It's a cut, but it looks very sexual. Yeah. Pinhead says like, we are demons to some, angels to others. It's basically the other half of the exposition that we got in the beginning of the movie. So we got the backstory on Larry and Julia and Frank, and now we're getting the backstory in so much as we can for the Cenobites and what they kind of stand for. And what Yeah. So Frank just wanted to get his rocks off, got way more than he bargained for, escaped, but without his skin. And now, <laughs> as one does. As one does. But I love that the fact that they didn't know that he escaped because Kirstie's like, you've done this before. And, P and Pinhead's like, oh yeah, this is like, we've done this. Before. Yeah, it definitely implies that there's a whole host of... Uh, I'm going to say victims down there. They also, yeah. they also tore him apart. So I don't think it's even that they weren't aware that he escaped. I think it was kind of assumed that like once he was in pieces, there was no way for him to go back. Because you yeah, but, really see him in pieces, which is kind of... Yeah, but then Kirsty says he escaped and the, and the one, the vagina neck lady goes, you know, that's not possible. And, well, yeah, that's uh, exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, that, oh, because he was like pieces. That makes yeah, sense. Like there, yeah, like there wasn't enough of him to go back in the first place. But the, the blood is the thing that enabled him to come back. And Kirsty figures out like how to kind of bargain with them. And I think that that's really interesting. For the yeah, well, it, it establishes them, it establishes them as reasonable beings. Yeah. They, because they can be bargained with, you know, you can have a conversation with them. They're different than the typical monster in that respect. They're also incredibly fair because yeah. once they realize that <clears throat> she did it by accident, well, I mean, they also, they, they do say like tough shit when she's like, I didn't, I didn't know that what was going to happen. But yeah. like, like well, <laughs> whatever. You, well, you summoned us. So here. you summoned us. So you're now you're here, but they accept the terms of, yeah, exactly. Of Kirstie's deal. And exactly. And, and that goes but, back but to they, what we said before about how, at least in this film, like Pinhead said, when he first came on in the scene. Uh, they're demons to some, angels to others. They sort of exist, at least in the first movie, in this neutral space. Yeah, before they turn into just, like, full tilt bad guys. Yeah, yeah, as the franchise goes on, they definitely become, you know, full tilt evil monsters. But And that's what's so cool about this movie, is that they're so ambiguous. And they're yeah, so, exactly. they, well, they exist outside of the realm of morality. If you want pleasure that is, you know, indecipherable from pain, mm -hmm here we are. That's what we do. That's it. And it's not our fault that Frank didn't realize what he was getting himself into. Yeah. They place a premium on like personal responsibility in a sense. Yeah. They've got their, they've got ethics. They've got an ethical code. In their, in their own way, they do. 
So Kirsty goes back to the house where we learn that Frank has killed Larry and is now wearing his skin. Julia lures Christy up to the attic where she locks her in with Larry's desiccated skinless corpse. The Cenobites appear while she's in the attic, but they know immediately that the corpse isn't Frank. Yes, because... Like, weren't they... I mean, part of it was that they Frank needed someone's skin to wear to complete the But leaving Larry in the attic the way they did, I think, was meant as a decoy. Because he does, the, he does talk about how the Cenobites are... When they realize he's missing, they're going to come for him. And Frank wearing Larry's skin tells Kirsty that they killed Frank. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, so they do, so they do introduce, like, when Julia locks her in the attic, she does give the impression that it's Frank. It's Frank, yeah. And not Larry. But when the Cenobites appear, they know immediately that's bullshit. Yeah, that's not, that's not the one. That is not, nope, that's not our guy. Like, we literally know him inside and out. That is not him. (laughs) We know his insides, and those don't match. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. and then Kirstie's like, wait, what? Like, no, that he, they said it. And she goes to run out the door and Larry Frank finds her, although she's still, she's now starting to think like, oh shit, like this is not my dad. And he says, come to daddy. And it's- Which is what clues her into to the fact that, like it, it confirms that the corpse upstairs is not Frank. <sighs> so as she's trying to escape, Julia kind of grabs her to hold her in place for Frank. In his attempt to get at her, he accidentally stabs Julia instead, and then just drains her. <laughs> like I love his response. Nothing personal, but also nothing personal, babe. Which just goes to show maybe her maybe her motivation was misplaced. And her and her face when he does that is just like what? And he and she just turns yeah. gray. Yeah, uh-huh. and also the guy who plays Larry. Mm-hmm. He also does such a great job of playing the Frank aspect. Yeah, the, the switch is very, very good. It's very good. And also, this yeah. is one of uh, Ashley Lawrence, who plays Kirstie. This was her one of her audition scenes. And when she walked in, right. Clive, Barker, Clive Barker said, okay, so your uncle is wearing your father's skin. Your uncle, has, your uncle has killed your father. And now killed he- your father, wearing his skin. Uh, he wants to have sex with you and kill you. Not necessarily in that order. Go. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, that's amazing. And, and she, you know, and they, you know what? It, the, it's weird out of context. It's not that much better with. Oh, with or without context. <laughs> it's all it's bad. Nasty. It's so nasty, especially yeah. now because it, it really does play with that idea that he has a skin on, but it's not the right one. Or it doesn't, it's not, it's, it's it's like where it's like wearing a shirt that doesn't fit. Yeah, and if you you know, mm-hmm. and if you tore the shirt, there would be like blood and guts falling out of it. Like there's a moment sure, yeah. where he when uh, he accidentally stabs Julia and she puts her hands on his face to like stop him. He turns away and there's just like a chunk of cheek missing. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not a gouge. It's definitely like flaps. Yeah, it's gross. And it's very much like Evil Dead when when they scratch the nails down the side of the face yeah it's true so yeah it, it, it turns into this very kind of incestuous like oh my god yes. so, so so frank drains julia and then chases kirstie up to the attic where they are once again met by the cenobites who had reappeared after hearing frank confess his crimes downstairs yeah because he says that he's frank 
or something like that at some point. Like, uh, yeah, like, yeah. He said, like, he says, he says something to incriminate himself. I can't remember the exact line off the top of my off the top of my head. When he sees the Cenobites in the attic, he turns around and says to Kirsty, "You set me up, bitch," which is also an admission of guilt in and of itself. Exactly. They once again ensnare him in chains, and once again they tear him apart. And the, the, my favorite, though, is that the vagina neck one says to Kirsty, she says, like, this is not for you to see or something like that. Like, yeah, turn so, away, child. This is not for turn you. Turn away, child. So she goes to the run to the door, and she, but she turns around because she's a little inquisitive little cat. Yeah. Uh, she turns around, and he's getting ripped apart. And She basically uh, turns around in time to see his final moments. And he licks his lips mm-hmm. at her. Mm-hmm. and says, Jesus wept. Yes. And it's just, ugh! I remember when I first saw this movie, I was like. It's, I don't know why, but it's a weirdly shocking line. It's so shocking. It really, I, it really I, is. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is because I don't consider myself a person to have delicate sensibilities. There's just something. <laughs> me neither. There's, there's something kind of viscerally upsetting <laughs> about it's very upsetting about that particular and, line and it's ad-libbed it was ad-libbed because they were trying to figure out what to say clive barker originally wanted him to say like fuck off or something because uh, and he was so like, something yeah. kind of yeah something pedestrian and it was yeah the actor whose name is escaping me at the moment and the actor said suggested say something biblical and it's the shortest chapter in the bible and yeah. clive was like Oh, yes. oh shit. let's do that. Let's do that. And, and, and it's and it's perfect. It's perfect because it's also well, you know what makes it disturbing, I feel. Mm-hmm. It's the confluence of everything on top of itself. It's yeah. the erotics of the moment. It's mm-hmm. the pain. It's incestuous. Mm-hmm. It's blasphemous. Um yeah. it's the sadomasochism of it. Yeah. So it's I think it's the ice cream cake of all of it. It's thrown yeah, together. Like all condensed in two words so nasty when he licks his lips is interesting oh it's well it's interesting because it's almost like an acceptance it is it's surrender it really is it's yeah it's it's surrender like you know you see him spending the entire movie doing everything he can to get away from this but when he finds himself once again literally ensnared in the middle of it he kind of gives himself up to it which plays into the themes of pleasure and pain that are kind of woven throughout the entire movie oh yeah 100 percent. so once frank is destroyed the cenobites decide they're going to take kirstie anyway but kirstie manages to get away and grab the puzzle box so that she can close the door um and you see you see her like frantically figuring it out and as it clicks into place you see the cenobites like one by one kind of like sucked back into their realm um, I love how Pinhead's like, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I think, not, I, think I'm, I think I'm gonna, though. Yeah, I, I think she says, go to hell. It's so good. So Kirstie's boyfriend meets her outside as the house starts to burn. And as they stand together, Kirstie throws the box into the flames. A, a vagrant character who has kind of been stalking Christie throughout the entire film. Um, he walks into the burning house to grab the box before transforming into this like skeleton creature with wings and flying away. We cut back to Morocco, where the same merchant is once again offering the box to an unsuspecting buyer. What's your pleasure, sir? And that's kind of the theme of the movie. What's your pleasure? Yeah. <laughs> I think the main thing that makes this movie the what it is, I think there are a lot of different 
for filmmakers who could make a movie with these themes. But I don't think that any of them could have done it the way that Clive Barker does it. No, uh, much much in the way that this movie kind of blurs the line between pleasure and pain. I think Clive Barker has a way of combining the the the, the gross with this really kind of delicate prose. Yes, he yes. has a way of finding beauty in things that are kind of viscerally disgusting. And his his stories are upsetting. Yeah. But they're not, I don't know, I can't quite put my finger on what it is I like about Clive Barker's writing because it is, he's, very, he's very violent and he kind of embraces that. You know what it is for me? Mm-hmm. It's very similar to the type of feeling that I get when I read Anne Rice because Anne Rice's books aren't disgusting, but there's a sensuous to the language and it's it's not the it's not sensuous like sexy although Anne Rice's books are also very like erotic but it's well I I think I think maybe sensual might be a better term for it and when I say sensual again I don't mean like in the the erotic sense but like literally in the evoking the senses there's a lushness yes Uh, there's a lush quality to the way and, that both of them write. And there's a delicacy to the language in, at least in Clive Barker's books, I have to admit, I haven't read a lot of Anne Rice. There's the del- yeah, there's a delicacy to, uh, to Anne Rice's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think he's one of those writers who's very specific in the way that he writes. And he wants to disturb you, mm-hmm. but it's almost like he's not necessarily trying to upset you. It's a very fine line between the two, and I think that's where his writing kind of lives. You know what it is? The reason why I find a lot of connection between him and Anne Rice is that mm-hmm. Anne Rice is also very interested in exploring the, the extremities of human experience, especially with her erotica, which are very, very, very bondage-heavy. And they are... Which is something, which is something that was considered really taboo until... Yeah, she wrote under a, she wrote under a fake name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it was, it was uh, almost, it was almost considered like a sort of sexual deviancy. Yeah. Very long, particularly because it is prevalent within the queer community too. Yes. And that is something too that we are going to. So there's, yeah, so there's this taboo quality to it, which like, thankfully we're starting to see a little bit less of that. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. definitely like, it's, it's not mainstream by any means, but I think it's a little bit more, it's accepted in a way that it wasn't necessarily like back when this movie was being made. For There's an ability to talk about it in a way that like oh, a great example of this, if we're going to, you know, mention Anne Rice, her book that I actually read this past summer, her book Exit to Eden. Mm-hmm. And it is um, interesting. It's sure. about this uh, bondage, basically, resort that you okay. have to pay an exorbitant amount of money and you have to fill out all this paperwork and do all this stuff. But once you fill out the paperwork, you have to apply to go. Yeah. Um, but once you, once you do all that, once you pass all this stuff, you are basically a slave on this pleasure island. And the interesting thing about it is it's, the focus is on a female dom and mm-hmm. a male slave that comes to the, the pleasure island or whatever. And it is very queer in the sense of it Mm. is very much about a man exploring his own limits of pleasure. It's it's subverting what we think of as like the norm, masculine, feminine, masculine versus feminine. Yeah, it's playing. It's queer in the sense that it's kind of playing with, uh, frankly, these kind of heteronormative. But they turned it into a comedy starring Rosie O'Donnell with like, and they made like bond the bondage of it a joke. And that's. Wait, 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 that's what that movie is based on. Yes! Oh my God. Yes! 
Okay. Exit to Eden starring Rosie O'Donnell is based on a book about, you know, like, basically Pleasure Island, but I like knew, adult. I knew, I knew of the book and I knew of the movie, but for some reason my head just did not. The Twain, the Twain did not Never the Twain shall right meet. No, absolutely not. Well, the I have Twain to- have met. So the reason why I bring that up is because for a very long time, there was a stigma and Anne Rice wrote under several different pen names when writing as this kind of erotic writer. Um, she yeah, because wrote, she had she had a, a pretty high profile at that. Yeah, but the vampire books and the, and the witchcraft books are also very sensual. I, I just but feel like- I think there's a, a level of like, there's a level of remove when you introduce these supernatural elements because now you're like, well, you're weird. So now we can add some weird sex and it's going to be fine. Whereas if it's just people. Then, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, when I say weird sex, I am again referring to it more as like what the, what the standard was at the time. What the mainstream like, considers to be. Yeah, weird. yeah, exactly. Not that these practices should be considered quote unquote weird. Uh, right. So there, so she wrote under, uh, for Exit to Eden, and it's also this book called Belinda, which both of those were written under the name Anne Rampling. But anyway, so the reason why I think there's a lot of different ways we can we can connect Clive Barker to Anne Rice, but Clive Barker encompasses a little bit more of the in the eye perspective queer aesthetic of horror in in a very deliberate way. Clive Barker is also notable because because of the fact that like he is one he is such a huge name in the horror genre and he is also an openly gay man. And we really don't see that kind of representation within the horror genre itself at all. Like yeah. it's still, it's getting better, but a lot of the history of it has been basically dominated by straight white men. Mm-hmm. So having one, having an alternative to that is like a breath of fresh air because it yeah. is bringing in a perspective that like, frankly, like you're not going to get with straight white men. I'm like, I'm sorry, but you're, you're not like no. the, the scope of experience is different for different people. And that's why representation matters not only is he an openly queer man, but like he, like to be accepted in the genre in the way that he is, I think has opened doors that maybe like we didn't have access to before. I think also something that connects to that is that Mm -hmm. a lot of times when there is gay representation, it's gotten better over the last like, like decade or so. But Mm -hmm. when there has been gay representation, just in general, not just in horror, it's the it's almost a neutered gayness that happens or it's, where or it's, it's a token representation or it, i mean it's token representation yeah and when it's not token it's a storyline that could very much be about straight people without any kind of examples of queerness so like yeah there's that would be like the, the 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 show will and grace where will was the, the the show was on for eight seasons and will didn't get a boyfriend until season seven like there was just no yeah like like exploration of him as a sexual gay no it was just sort of acceptable to say this character is gay moving on like we never really got an expression of it other than other than the fact that like we were we were told periodically like oh yeah don't forget he's gay but it reminds me of uh dan levy when he's like there was always these like shows in the 90s where it was like on a very special episode two men hug yeah, it, it, <laughs> no, it's, it's exactly like that though like, they've kissed twice that's, that's a lot that's a lot yeah yeah should we have them Fuck you yeah. no, it, it and it it does kind of play into this otherness aspect which is where queer characters and queer creators have kind of lived 
honestly, up until pretty recently. Um, it's- and it's that thing where um, Trixie and Katya were actually just talking about mm-hmm. it on one of their episodes where they were talking about how like little kids, like not little kids, but like teenage girls love them until they start talking about, they, they, they were, they're like, we remind them of the fact that we're men who have sex and they're yeah. like, Ugh! and it's like, they're gay men. What did you think? That what they did you were think just was happening? Gonna- yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like going back to going back to the, um, something you said earlier too, I think the it's it's important to have queer creators, especially in a space like horror, because there's nuance to yes. being queer versus being straight. Going back to your your Will and Grace example, like Will was ostensibly a straight man, like he was he was written as a straight man, and then they were like, oh, but he's gay. And to that end, too, there are definitely like sexuality is a spectrum and like being gay or being bi or being queer like it doesn't mean one particular thing but I do think you need to at least be aware of the way experiences shape people differently it's not about having to quote-unquote act gay no that's not what I mean at all no but there's there's no and I know it's not um I'm more like clarifying for myself because I don't want it to sound like you know every, every gay character has to be Jack from Will and Grace uh, exactly. But it's that, that feeling of they were never allowed to be, to sexually express that they were actually gay. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It was like, and, I'm gay and, and that's fine. So like Grace had a new boyfriend every day and was like making out with it was still, Yeah, it, it was, it, like, it was still a very straight show. Yeah. It was very heteronormative. Very heteronormative. Very heteronormative. Yeah. No, you're, no, it's a better way to, that's a better way. And then you get Clive Barker, who in the eighties is writing stuff well, actually, this this book, I mean, it's very queer coded, but it is kind of straight in the sense of the relationships in it are very heterosexual. The, the relationships are very are very heterosexual, but the themes are very queer. I, well, I think when it was written too, that was kind of the way you got published. Oh, yeah, especially with a book, especially with a with the kind of book like that had that explored the themes that this book does, like if you're painting it in these quote-unquote like straight relationships uh, it's the same thing we said before I think it kind of gives it a level of remove mm-hmm. people feel yeah. okay to approach the material so this was written this was based on a short on a novella that Clyde Barker wrote called The Hellbound Heart before he mm-hmm. was a filmmaker he was a writer and write, wrote like we've said wrote a bunch of amazing uh, short stories he also wrote the short story that turned into Candyman um, right. very different than the Candyman that ends up on the screen mm-hmm. but I just wanted to, uh, this is the bit where Frank opens the box and he realizes that it's not what he expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had expected something different, expected some sign of the numberless splendors they had access to. He had thought they would come with women at least. Oiled women, milked women, women shaved and muscled for the act of love. Their lips perfumed, their thighs trembling to spread, their buttocks weighty the way he liked them. He had expected size and languid bodies spread on the floor underfoot like a living carpet. Had expected virgin whores whose every crevice was his for the asking and whose skills would press him upward, upward to undreamed of fantasies. The world would be forgotten in their arms. He would be exalted by this lust instead of despised for it. But no, no women, no size, only these sexless things with their corrugated flesh. 
So he thought he was going to get like a, like a, a horny harem. And instead he got these like rat he, people. <laughs> yeah, he opened, he opened the box expecting that he would be like the king of the castle. And basically greeted with virgin whores. Yeah. Willing to <laughs> yeah. get their every crevice filled. No, Ugh. no. Tur- turns out you're their dog. Yeah. And I love that, that he uh, kind of experiences that pleasure though. And then yeah. the woman, like it ends. And then there's that woman on top of like that big mountain of skulls. And she's like, mm-hmm. okay, you're done. Now we can start. And it's like, oh, you are in for a world of pain now. Yeah, like right. you thought that this was over. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. You got, you got yours. Now we get ours. But it is still very, um, even that is still very kind of queer the way that it's written. Mm-hmm. Like it, it feels yeah. very like the muscle, like well-muscled for love and like mm-hmm. the butts or the way they, he likes them. It's like, it's very, it's still very like masculine gay. Like it is yeah. very much written from like that kind of perspective. And it almost mm-hmm. also feels like Clive is trying a little too hard. It, to make it, it seem reminds me, Yeah. It, yeah, it reminds me of, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Captain Holt on, uh, on Brooklyn Nine-Nine when he's like, that she was a wonderful woman with full human breasts. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's, it is. It's very, it's very much like that. But even in the movie, there is this kind of feminine, I mean, it does make sense that the, the movie is about one woman's horniness. And we will mention this, that it was based on the Hellbound Heart mm-hmm. and Clive Barker wanted it, wanted them to change the name because it sounded too much like a romance, which is hilarious because the the novella is not a romance. Yeah, and also um, like hellbound does not sound like a romantic term. Hellbound? Yeah. yeah. So do yeah. you want to do you want to give the the listeners uh, the examples that Clive Barker was suggesting for what they could call this? Oh yeah. So Bar- yeah, Barker offered sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave, which was rejected for the overtly sexual content. Uh, he had a few more, which were equally weird. And he ultimately opened the floor to the production team to offer up their own suggestions, prompting a 60-year-old female crew member to suggest what a woman will do for a good fuck. I mean, she's not wrong. It's probably the most accurate description of the film. Like, that could have been the tagline on the poster. The subtitle of this movie should just be, bitches be horny, am I right, ladies? Like, it, (laughs) it it really is, though. It's like, what this woman will do all of these things will feed this man, this, this, not even a man, this thing of viscera in a, in a bone suit, feed him blood. So, so he can get a skin to wear so she can get boned one more time. And that's the first thing that she does when he gets Larry's skin on, they go and have sex. There's something, and there's something particularly vile about the idea of her fucking the, this, the fucking the skin thing. Dead husband's skin. Also, that one moment where, like, he says, like, I need more, like, blah, blah, blah. He's like, do you trust me? Like, I need, I need this, and then we can be together or whatever. Yeah. And he, like, puts her finger to his, puts his finger to her mouth, and the, <sighs> the finger's, like, bone. It's, like, bone and blood, and she sucks on it. And I was like, this is <laughs> Ah! it's oh yeah no I'm like I'm sorry I'm sorry no dick is that good no no it's I would even go not, as far as to say no vagina is that good nothing no nothing is no, that good no I'm not putting I am not putting your 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 gloopy skeleton finger in my mouth for any reason I was like I was like I want to wait I'm gonna wait and I'm gonna 
So you were I was, yeah, I saw, I saw you waiting for it. I saw you waiting for it. Just, I was like, what's the adjective she's going to say? It's not, not going to be good, whatever it is. I'm not going to put your gloopy member anywhere near my body. Absolutely not. You know what? Not even once. Not even, not even once to see what it was, would, would be like. No, thank you. You know what it would be like? It would be bad. I think that's kind of a good lead in to the Cenobites themselves, who are these morally ambiguous kind of androgynous creatures. And when I say morally ambiguous, I am talking about the first movie specifically, like we said before. Yes. Because even in Hellraiser 2, they do start to take on a distinctly more like villainous tone. Yeah. And then they go full tilt villain once the movies start to like take off. Oh, well, yeah, once, they, they, once they become the central focus, then they become the monsters, and then yeah, frankly, yeah. they become boring. But they're kind of, like, they're, they're kind of, they're kind of like priests. They very much are like priests. Religion. Yep. And they, they, they don't consider their victims as such either. Like, they, to, to their mind, they believe that they're, uh, they're delivering what the person wants or asks for. Like, like, cause Frank opens the box looking for pleasure, like looking for the extremes. Mm-hmm. of pleasure because they are creatures that exist in a world of extremity and that's and what, what they that's what they deliver it's just that their ideas of pleasure are so far removed from what's considered quote-unquote normal that that's kind of what makes them monsters and in the book Kirsty like opens the box by accident and mm. the pinhead sort of prototype in the book appears and knows that Kirsty did it by accident said like right. you didn't mean to you didn't mean to do this did you yeah and why Chrissy's like yeah I didn't mean to do it and but then the best is that the son of it goes yeah I figured that you didn't mean to do it but too bad and now we're here, so. like, <laughs> well now you're here so let's bring out the chains like yeah, yeah, it's exactly. so funny exactly like, I get that you didn't mean to do it but but I'm also here. also you did it also the box you opened it you opened the box came. yeah I, I, you know, Pinhead in particular seems to have some kind of moral code that he adheres to. It's just that, like, compared to what we consider a moral code, it's uh, fucked up. He has his own sense of, of a compass. Yes. It, it, it kind of points in the opposite direction that ours does. Everybody else's does, basically. Um, uh, Ashley Lawrence was talking about him, was talking about Pinhead in, in an interview, and she said that, like, he's like, I think that, that, that Pinhead is fascinated by Kirsty because she's kind of mm-hmm. like figured him out and makes a bet, like makes deals with him and is, is very much, is, I mean, she's afraid of him, but she mm-hmm. like can figure him out. I think if you took the, the horror and the emotion out of the situation, there's kind of a fascination with him. And they play with that a, li- a lot in Hellraiser 2 as well, which we're obviously not going to get into uh, too deep in this episode. But you definitely see the way she, the way she bargains with him, and she does seem to recognize that there's a, like a part of him that is aware and is listening oh, yeah. to her. And that's, I mean, again, that's what makes them interesting as quote unquote movie monsters because they are multi-dimensional. Like they can, they yeah. reasoned with. It's just that what they consider reasonable is not what we would consider reasonable. Yeah, their their boundary lines are uh, they they kind of play jump rope with it. There's definitely a lot of like moving the moving the goalposts a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like go, you know, even going back to what we were talking about with the way Kirsty kind of bargains with him. Like we said that Pinhead went back on his word 
um, to take Frank instead of her. But even that's not exactly true. Yeah, he really didn't. No, because his, his exact words were, maybe we'll let you go. So yeah, he goes, maybe. Oh yeah. Maybe. It's not not technically a betrayal. Like he never committed one way or the other. He basically just said, I'll think about it. Going back to like the, the BDSM aspect of it, like Uh with with connecting to the, the Cenobites. First of all, they're known as the, also known in the book as the order of the gash, which is nasty. It's also gash. Gash is a British term for vagina. Uh, yes, and cultural differences aside, it should be struck from the record. Oh God, it's awful. It's so it's so violent. It's so like yeah. it's, it's very upsetting. So the one of the things that I find really interesting about this movie, and we've kind of talked about it, mm-hmm. is the BDSM aspect of it because mm-hmm. we in today's contemporary culture are. Um, we've had kind of a resurgence of things that deal with BDSM, specifically because of things like Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, I oh, oh, I'm not saying that it is a. I know. Correct. I know. I know you're not. That's just. That um, I I I am legally required to react that way whenever somebody. Brings it. I'm legally required to make a barf noise when Fifty Shades <laughs> of Grey is mentioned. Um, it did bring in to the public kind of conversation mm-hmm. what BDSM in relationships is, or or or. Maybe it maybe brings, it's a blueprint for what it shouldn't be. But it's, it's exactly it's exactly a blueprint for what it shouldn't be. But it brought a different kind of like cultural awareness to yes. it. I mean, I, yeah, I yeah. guess the kindest thing you can say is that it opened the conversation, uh-huh. or or uh-huh. it broadened it broadened the conversation. Now, did it do it in a way that was good or responsible, or to use the actual terminology, safe, sane, and consensual? No, it did yeah. not. But it made it mainstream in a way that I don't think it was before. Right. And I think it also brought in a lot of people that were using that as an example of what not to do and then mm-hmm. bringing in their own examples of what to do. Exactly. And I think so that's in, been very helpful. Yeah. In that respect, it's definitely helped foster that conversation and made people feel like they could have that conversation because it is definitely one of those like, things that we do in the shadows. Before. Yeah. And there's so much to be said about what, you know, that book gets wrong about yep. that kind of environment. And obviously we are not people that are well-versed in that, like personally, but in, I- In I an academic sense, perhaps, but- In an academic sense, I'm very interested- Spoken like two nerds. I know. I'm very interested in it in, in an academic sense. I'm like very interested in how to, I'm really interested in <laughs> But I I am interested in it in the sense of um, my interests are in gender studies and feminism and sexuality Mm -hmm. studies. So I am really interested in it from that sort of lens Mm -hmm. of what it means to completely. uh, And I'm also really interested in it from like the submission perspective of like the idea of it being still a feminine, a feminist act to Mm -hmm. submit because the idea really that Fifty Shades of Grey gets wrong is that the submissive in those situations is the one who's very much in control of the entire situation. And yeah, exactly. They set parameters based on what both people in the relationship want to do, but mm-hmm. also what they don't want to do. There are boundaries, even in a BDSM yeah. relationship, just because somebody likes to get tied up, doesn't like to get slapped. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. Like there's definitely um, a, a, a negotiation and consent angle that puts a lot of the power in the submissive's hands. Mm-hmm. 
and you are trusting the person that you're with to Absolutely. respect your boundaries. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's another phrase in the BDSM community called um, hurt, don't harm, where, yes. you know, especially if you're somebody who enjoys like, you know, like um, pain play and that sort of thing, pain play. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's about, I want to get hurt, but in these ways that I specifically like, and if you go beyond yeah. that, that is not what I enjoy. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. And yeah, there, I mean, there's a difference between like seeking out pain and causing actual damage. Yeah. And um, also, um, there are people that there's this, a sense of, um, people in the community like, you know, they'll, they like getting hit or they like, you know, these particular things in a physically kind of violent way, but mm-hmm. they don't like, they don't like name calling. They don't like being humiliated. Um, yeah, and there are people who get, who get off on like being praised and being told that they're good. And it's interesting too, because it's, as part of the conversation, it is opening people up to the idea that like, there's, there's a whole world that exists within this concept. And there's so many different facets of it to explore. Like, I think people hear EDSM and they think like whips and chains and like, okay, sure. That's, that could be part of it, but it encompasses so many different aspects. And there's such a wide, like, I mean, talking about sexuality being a spectrum, there's a spectrum within this, this world as well. Oh yeah. I mean, you can get the more extreme version, or you can get something that's, you know, kind of on the tamer end. And then there's like a whole spectrum that exists in between the two. And if nothing else, I think that's a conversation worth continuing and worth pursuing because I think anything that kind of breaks down these very like heteronormative standards, um, particularly in regards to sexuality and particularly in this country where we are still very Puritan, um, those are conversations that need to happen. And it's works like this one that help facilitate those conversations. Like we are, we are mirrors that kind of reflect the media and the content that we're taking in. So yeah. The- and this movie is also about, honestly, it's about a woman's, she's kind of trying to recreate the, the moment that she had a mm-hmm. perfect orgasm, you know, like that she wants to have that, that sensory experience. She's, again. Yeah, like she's chasing, chasing that a high. And, yeah. um, that's a lot of what the BDSM is about. It's about that sensory, either either it's the sensory experience of knowing Mm -hmm. that you are, that you've, that someone's put their trust in your hands and you're getting off on that, like Mm -hmm. not control, but getting off on that, taking care of someone. Um, or it's that feeling of I'm giving myself entirely over to this person, but, but I know they're not going to hurt me in a way that I don't want them to. That's where the line gets really blurry. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's why, that's why those clear lines need to be drawn, like before you enter into a scene. That's the thing that people don't understand is that when it's, when it's about things like BDSM, especially when you get into like the dark, the, the not the darker, but the deeper stuff. Um, the, 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 more, stuff that, the more extreme stuff. The stuff where you could literally like really hurt someone or maybe kill yeah. them if you don't do it right. You have to talk about it and set those parameters beforehand. And then once you're done, you have to take care of the person that you're with. There's this thing called yeah, yeah. care. There's, yeah, there's, there's a before and an after that I think people need to be more aware of. It's not just the sex itself. It's not just what's happening in that moment. It's about the, the lead up and then the kind of- The come down. The come down. Afterward. It's like exactly. if you did a, if you did a very extreme sport, like, you know, if you, if, if you run a marathon, you have to like refuel afterwards, you have to hydrate, you have to rest, yeah. you have to like, yeah. you know, take care of yourself. It's very yeah. similar to that, but on mm-hmm. almost an, on a more like emotional 
I mean, sometimes physical level, you have to like, you know, make sure that they're not like bruised or whatever. Sure, sure, sure. Or if they are bruised, you have to like, you know, take care of them afterward. Sure. But it's also about being there and reassuring them because they can drop from that emotional high yeah. and crash. And I think that these are nuances that don't really get explored in this realm. And I think also that is uh, mm. connecting back to the movie when, when Frank is going like it's never enough, when mm. he's laying in bed, you can see Julia like with her hand on his leg, just like mm. touching him. Yeah. And I think she feels very kind of helpless in that moment. And like, yeah. she's in this kind of emotionally charged after mm. state. And yeah. I don't think Frank, Frank is a selfish little prick and not a good example of BDSM in any way, shape or form. No, 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 no. He's yes. just getting his and moving on. He, uh, um, he, yeah, he has no regard for his partners at all. And Julia just, and I mean, and in the novella, The Hellbound Heart, when they first have sex, it is very much similar to assault. I'm going to read one thing really quick from Hellbound Heart. It's re- um, so it's when uh, Frank shows up and they, and they have sex. Mm-hmm. The smooth exterior gave way to cruder stuff almost immediately. Their coupling had had in every regard but the matter of her acquiescence, all the aggression and the joylessness of rape. Memory sweetened events, of course. And in, the f- and in the four years and five months since that afternoon, she replayed the scene often. Now in remembering it, the bruises were trophies of their passion. Her tears proof positive of her feelings for him. Woof. I'm going to go jump. I'm going to go jump off a bridge. Yep. That is like, no, 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 no. That's like, oh, he hit me, but then he was so nice afterward. Like, no. No, no, no. No, no it's, definitely, it's definitely restructuring the traumatic memory. Yeah. And in the movie, at least, you get a sense that she like was really enjoying it. In the movie, she, she was, was enjoying it. In the movie, she was super into it. Super into it. Definitely. So and I, I, think like that, that. I think that's an improvement, honestly. Oh, 100%. At least in the movie, it's a consensual, enthusiastic. Very much so. And, um, and going back to what you said earlier about like chasing that one perfect orgasm, I think this movie is also kind of an exploration of what happens when you exist in a world where you're kind of not allowed to pursue that. Oh yeah. Like because it's not available to you or because it's not quote unquote socially acceptable. Um, like you're kind of driven to extremes to kind of satiate this like need within yourself. Whereas if it's not treated as something like taboo and scary, and people are allowed to express themselves in healthy, positive ways. Everybody would be better off. Everything, everyone would be better off. Absolutely. And and I and I think that that yeah that is expressed with Julia because she's miserable. Yeah. And and, and I mean like obviously part of that is that in this particular case like she's married and also like Frank is not the guy that's going to settle down with her by any means. But no. um, taking that out of the equation, like if if she if she could have like maybe left her husband and explored this side of her sexuality that I get the impression she hadn't really been aware of before her encounter with Frank. He awakened it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we would, well, we wouldn't have a movie, so I guess that's not good, but, um, yeah, we wouldn't have a movie, Lindsay. God. I know. I know. No, I totally, I totally agree with that. I think, yeah, no, I think I do think it's, I think it's a commentary on not allowing people to explore their sexuality in healthy ways. Which is also very queer coded. Which is also right? very queer coded. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So would you recommend this movie, Lindsay? I would. Absolutely. I would recommend it with a caveat that just, you know, kind of be aware of what you're getting into. 
it's it's not i wouldn't call it a hard movie to watch it's not something that's difficult in the way like texas chainsaw massacre is but yeah it's definitely it's a different level of intensity than i think anything else we've covered so far and i think for some people it has the potential to be not upsetting but uh kind of uncomfortable uncomfortable yeah yeah so i think yeah like i i recommend it but go in with your eyes open yeah, I recommend this movie. I really, I really love this movie. I, I think you have to be in the right frame of mind to watch it. It's not a movie that I'm like, I got a night free. I'm going to watch Hellraiser. But I think I would pull this one in uh, a little faster than I would something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah, makes me feel dirty and is just, just a bummer to watch. Yeah. Whereas this one is fascinating to me. And I think it's because of the, the S&M pleasure and pain like mm-hmm. interlocking aspect of it yeah and i also I think, think percy as a character is really interesting um she's she's she great she's not in. yeah no she's definitely not um i feel like she's a prototype for some of like the horror movie heroines that come later like i don't think you get sydney prescott without no. a character like kirstie and and kirstie herself is kind of a inspired by characters like Laurie Strode. Like you can kind of, yes. you can see, you can trace the path from like one to the other, but I definitely think she embodies a certain type of horror movie heroine that we come to embrace. Yeah, I, I do too. And I think it also helps that she's a little bit older and I think that she's a little bit more self-sufficient and she kind of is just like, what the, yeah. what is going on? Mm-hmm. And I also think that Obviously, I think that just like the characters of the Cenobites are just really interesting. And I think that there's a gothic nature to this movie that you don't really get in a lot of other horror movies. Um, There's other Mm -hmm. versions of gothic horror out there, obviously, but this takes so many cues from Mm -hmm. old um, gothic horror and obviously Argento there's a reference to, um, on the commentary, there's a reference to Mario Bava's Black Lace, which is also very much like Mm -hmm. in that gothic European style. It's very over the top. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a fairy tale aspect to it as well. Yeah. I think that's also why I like it because it's got this mystical, Mm -hmm. like this box summons these demons. And, but depending on who you are, they are also like the guides to this supreme realm of, of whatever you would want. I also like right. in, the, in the novella, uh, it's very clear um, almost immediately that Frank's like, oh shit, I probably shouldn't have done this. So I kind of like that there's yeah. that feeling of like, I just did something horribly, horribly stupid. He um, recognizes immediately that he's made a mistake. Oh, it's great. It's like, yeah, because he thinks, like we read, like he thinks he's going to end up with all these like yeah. virgins who are like de- DTF yeah. and instead he gets these like rat yeah. people. So... That wraps up our discussion of Hellraiser. And now we are going to move on to our palate cleansers. So, Lindsay, what has brought you joy this week? What has brought me joy this week? I have been watching, I'm already kind of in the holiday spirits the weekend before Thanksgiving, but like my Christmas yeah. is fine. I've been watching a lot of uh, these like holiday baking specials on. Netflix. So like I rewatched uh Nailed It. Oh, there's some of their holiday episodes. I've been watching the show called Sugar Rush. I heard about that. I I I have not watched the regular series, but I've been watching the Christmas episodes and it's it's fun. It's really fun. I like it a lot. Oh. Is it like a it's a dessert show? It's a dessert like- show. Yeah, it's it yeah, they have a weird timing system. I'm not going to get into the mechanics right now because Nailed, nailed it but with good with good bakers. 
basically, basically. Um, and you know, like like Great British Baking Show has their like holiday seasons. So I kind of I've been dancing my way through those, and that's what's bringing me joy this week is holiday baking. I love it. Very relaxed. It's a good. And it's a good, it's, I mean, it's a good week to, to start thinking about that because I mean, Thanksgiving, there's Thanksgiving baking to do and, mm-hmm. um, and cooking and stuff. So I think sure. it's a good time to start kind of shoring up on recipes for not just Thanksgiving. Oh, but, no, none know. of these are recipes that I'll be using. Let me be very clear. Like, <laughs> this is, this is professional baker nonsense. And like, I can barely roll out puff pastry. So no, 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 no. But I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, okay. So what has brought me joy this week? Um, honestly, my my library card and my apps, my library apps. So I have Overdrive, which is a great app, but I also got, I also got Hoopla. The only issue that I have with Hoopla is that it has, so the good news and the bad news. The good news is that it has a gigantic database, way more than Overdrive with way more books um, available Mm -hmm. immediately. The bad news about Overdrive is you can only take out 10 books a month. And I'm a very fast reader and I ran out of my space. Uh, uh-huh. I, ran, I ran out of books like this Are morning you- and I literally <laughs> looked at my phone when I got the notification and I went, what? 10? What? <laughs> what? I like literally was just shrieking what at my phone. Um, Is it free? Yeah. You just have to have a library card. It's great. Wow. Cool. Yeah, it's awesome, but I think that's why they only let you do ten books a month because they have mm. such an uh, such an overwhelming database. Like basically, you yeah. name the book and it's on there. But they, I think that's What's why it Hoopla. Hoopla. H- yeah. H O O P L A. Hoopla. And then Overdrive is the one where you can. Um, Overdrive. Overdrive is the one that I use. Um, Overdrive is great, and, and I, I like, Over, Overdrive is nice because I can get the books downloaded like right onto my Kindle. So that's the nice thing about, about Overdrive. Hoopla, mm-hmm. you have to use the app to read the book. Which I mean, which I mean, is totally fine. Which is fine. And I also like Hoopla because it just has a, has a, has a better amount, of, has a wider amount of books. Sure. But uh, the fact that you can only uh, take out 10 books a month on Hoopla is uh, bullshit. So I, I, but maybe that's just my fault because I'm a very fast reader. But you just so have to I've find something reading, to like fill in your time. Yeah, but what I fill in my time is reading. But like, so my, um, I've been reading a lot of romance novels because they are a nice, uh, like warm hug. And um, my current two favorite romance novel authors are Joanna Shoup and uh, Lisa Claypass. And hmm. um, I've literally torn through every book that Joanna Shoup has, has written in the last nice. like year. They're really, really good. And just in time, I'm about to finish up with her books just in time because she is starting a new series and I believe it's coming out in like February. So oh, okay. the first book comes out in like February. Nice. And then Lisa Claypass has a new book that just came out in February um, of this past year, but she has a very, very long catalog. I think like her first romance novel got published in like the early nineties. So she's got a lot, but I'm double pissed because the book that um, I got the alert on saying that I had hit my limit for downloads for the month was mm. uh, the book that everybody was recommending to me from mm. Lisa Claypass that like w- is like her best book. So I was double pissed because <laughs> I downloaded dumb books on that app that weren't as good. Um, so yeah, I love me a good romance novel and they're very, they're very steamy and it's a fun little escape for me. Nice. And 
romance novels, I, a, the romance genre is, I believe, very feminist um, in a lot of different ways. And people who don't think that uh, just don't know what they're talking about. The more modern romance novels mm. are. They're, they're, they're yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. feminist. Not necessarily like the bodice rippers of the 70s and 80s. No, um, but I like the idea. They give them a bad, uh, romance novels get a bad rap for being like women's books. But you know what? Women's books are like, whatever. We need a room what's of wrong? our own. What's wrong, for, what's wrong like, with Virginia women's books? Like, why, is that, why is that being used as a pejorative? I don't know. It's it, like, I don't, I don't get why people think like, ooh, chick books or chick flicks are bad. Like, screw you. Like, yeah, I like well, you know, books. the reason, the reason is that anything that isn't marketed to straight white men is automatically considered less. <laughs> yeah. And as we've seen from this movie, straight white men are stupid. Um, that's what, that's the, t- that is, I think the main takeaway from this movie, because it is true. All of the men in this movie are stupid. Yeah, like Useless some of the men are trash, and then the ones that aren't are just blah. Like just yeah. mil- like milk toast, like what you said. Milk toast, yeah. Ugh. So that wraps up our discussion of Hellraiser, and we hope that you enjoyed it. And we've got one more episode after this, and then we are taking a little bit of a break just to enjoy the holiday season and to go into the new year. Mm -hmm. And we will be back around January with um, a whole new slate of movies. That's right. But get excited because the next movie that's coming up is Lindsay's birthday mandate. And I promise it's not going to be as painful as Alyssa's was. I I mean, I would argue, but... (laughs) But you can't. Yeah, you can't. You can argue, but you would lose. This is a movie that, this is a, the movie that for Lindsay's birthday mandate is one that we both have a lot to say and it holds a very special place in both of our hearts. Correct. So I'm super excited about that one. Um, we've already got some great ideas set for what's going to come your way in 2021. Um, I believe we've kind of, we've kind of started talking about what the first couple movies uh, are going to be for season two, which is crazy. <laughs> so I am super excited for that. So get excited for all of those coming up. And we hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you celebrate, even though uh, the pilgrims kind of sucked. And uh, we hope that you stay safe. If you can mm-hmm. stay home or stay close to home, please stay home. So we can Not even home. if you can, like just stay close to home. Don't be trapped. Stay close to home. If Don't you if it. you have to if you observe the holiday, please just celebrate it with like your with your pod, please. Mm-hmm. Because the yeah. sooner we all pay attention to this stuff, the sooner we can all like you know go outside. <laughs> so please, ah, <laughs> oh, I missed outside. Oh, outside! Remember the before <laughs> yeah, times? I remember. Um, <laughs> you can catch us online. You can catch us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Frank and Bride Pod, mm-hmm. and our you can email. Also- Yes, you can also email us at frankenbridepod at gmail.com. And if you have, so you can email us with any questions, comments, um, you can, uh, maybe related to this, this episode, or if you're mm-hmm. working back through the catalog, you can ask us questions about the other episodes. And if you're any, if you have any experience in the topics that we've discussed today in our um, episode, please reach out. We would love to hear from you. Absolutely. We're always looking for education purposes because we are big nerds. We will see you next time. And uh, thank you so much for listening to Brides of Frankenstein. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 
you are 100% ignoring that I am losing my shit over you using the metaphor toothpaste. In the I I have my notes open on the screen right now, so I do not see that. Oh, I was just peeing my pants laughing. <laughs> because you say it. Because you're saying tooth, but you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, considering this is like such a horny movie. <laughs> is toothpaste horny? I don't get horny for toothpaste, do you? If you use it as a, if you, if you, if you turn it into a euphemism the way that my brain automatically did. So I said toothpaste and your brain went to like, oh, sex. Okay. Like, you know, toothpaste mm. shooting out of a tube. Don't make me explain it. It'll ruin mm. it if I explain it. Mm-hmm. You ruined it. Come on. This is very good. No. I wanted to no. do this more. No, this is great. Absolutely. You mean, I thought it was funny. 